So this morning, on kind of building on those blocks a little bit, um, we've been in the study of Ephesians, right? And part of the, the challenge of Ephesians is that it's written deeply for this community that is intertwined together. I mean, sewn together, knitted together, and they come from all walks of life, right? Remember, this is the, the forging together of two full different people groups, right? Gentile Christians and Jewish Christians, people that never, ever got along or spent time together or could even stand the idea of each other have been thrust into this new family and forged in this fire together and now called one new people. That was the whole entirety of Ephesians 1 through 3. This new people that God created have been thrust into this relationship in which they are forged and welded together to make one new body. And this body has got to live and has to realize how they're called to interact together and how that looks like and how they treat each other and how they experience life together. And so the, the parts of four and five of chapters in Ephesians are really about how we begin to do that. They become very practical. How do we live out this life as a new family of God? And chapter 5 has been really challenging because it began with this call to be imitators of God, and then we walked through some really difficult passages, right? We've talked about sexual immorality and impurity and greed and obscenity. We talked about light and darkness and living wise versus unwise lives. And then last week, Brandon walked us through this, this call, the sort of first of what would be five. We're looking at four today. Brandon looked at the first one last week. Commands that Paul gives us about what it looks like to live fully engaged with the Spirit of God. And, and Brandon did a great job explaining that last verse to us, which Paul says, listen, don't get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery, but instead be filled with the Spirit of God. We talked about what that looked like, but we dealt with the reality that drunkenness and the, the exchange of those things is not really about just a substance, but it's about what we begin to trust and put in the place where God is, what we begin to become drunk on, power, greed, need, Right? our desire to be liked, all of these different things that become this great substitute for what God said he is in our life. And so chapter 5 has been hard. It's been great, and it's been hard. Right? We've talked about the challenge that culture presents us with, with things like sexuality and what that looks like and what impurity looks like and what we're called to be in and out of. It's been a challenge. It's been beautiful, but it's been a challenge. Well, this week, Paul is going to actually bring that whole chapter, if you will, to a close. He doesn't do it because those numbers were added later. But for us, we're bringing this thought pattern to a close. And next week, we're going to be diving into a, a pretty significant series that leads us into the end of the book. And that series begins with this idea of rules for marriage and family. And these are the challenging ones, right, that build upon what Paul's already done, which is what does it look like for a husband to love his wife? What does it look like for a wife to love her husband? What does it look like for children to obey their parents? And we're going to talk about things like submission and death to self. And it is beautiful. It's not as challenging as you think it is. Culture, like most things, has perverted the ideas of words like submission. And they have taken them, and we are going to take them back. So as we begin this process today of closing chapter 5 and easing into chapter 6, we're going to reclaim some things that I think have been stolen from believers by culture. And so we're going to do that this morning by ending with four commands that Paul gives at the end of chapter 5 that are actually much lighter than some of the heavier stuff we've dealt with. And we're going to look at it from a command stand, and then we're going to look at it from the how in the world do you pull this off. So here's the command, how do we do it, right, in sort of a simplistic way. 
So, and that's going to actually pour us into uh, chapter 6, uh, as we're going to talk about submission at the end today, and we're going to actually pick that up again next week. So if you've got your Bible, I want you to go ahead and turn to Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to be in the last few verses there. We'll, we'll read 18, where Brandon left us off, and then we'll go 19, 20, 21, and we'll wrap those up with four commands, and let's look at the practical side of that. We're going to try and do it all relatively relatively quickly this morning. Let's take a moment. We'll pray briefly because we, we already kind of laid out and petitioned to the Lord, but let's ask the Lord to teach our hearts this morning. Lord, we thank you for your word, that it is true and that it is right and that it is holy. We thank you that it is not a guidebook for our life, but this is your love letter poured out for us. It is the breath of God, the Theopunestos. Therefore, we do not take an encounter with it lightly. This is your word. So take a moment in your heart this morning and just ask the Lord to teach you. God, teach me. Not about what I say, but about what your word says. So, Lord, teach my heart through your word. Just whisper that in your heart this morning. As we do each week, take a moment and just pray for someone around you. Pray that God would move in them. Care about the spiritual movement and development in the people around you. Pray that God would move. Pray for your husband or your wife or maybe that person you don't even know. If you're here for the first time and you think that's weird, just try it. Care about somebody else this morning. Everything unfolds here on Sunday morning is just not about you. Pray for the movement and the people around you. Lord, we ask that you would teach us through your word, that you would enlighten us, that you would reveal truth to us. We know that we won't discover you. You are the revealer of who you are. And so we ask that you would reveal yourself to us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So end of chapter 5, we're going to wrap it up. We're going to look at the last verse that Brandon touched on, just because I want you to see the command, and then we're going to look at the next four and unpack those a little bit this morning. This is what it says. It says, Uh, Let's start in verse 18. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery, but instead be filled with the Spirit. So that's where Brandon left us last week, did a great job parsing that out and what that means and trying to not let us get away with, oh, I've never really been drunk on wine, and so I'm good, safe. Um, But really explained what Paul was getting at, which he did a great job on. But he exchanges that, right, with this last little piece of truth here that says, but instead be filled with the Spirit. And this is what that's going to begin to look like. Look at verse 19. Speak to one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Sing and make music with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So as he wraps this up, he says, don't get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery, but instead, and this is sort of the connecting point, but instead be filled with the Spirit. And what does that actually look like in terms of how we play that out as a community, right? And he begins to lay out a few things that he puts in a command form. Now, the first one we just saw, don't get drunk, don't let the things of the world become the movement of your heart, right? And then he gives four more. So we're going to let that one sit. We exegeted it last week. We're going to do these next four this morning. And they're really simple, yet they're really profound and very practically kind of difficult to to lay out. But we're going to do it in sort of a simplistic way. But the first of these commands says this. So those that are filled with the Spirit, that are part of the community that he's writing to in Ephesus, he said, speak to one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. 
What in the world does that mean? Well, before we get to there, let's, let's break down what these things are first. So if the believers, right, which is who he's writing to, right? He's writing to the church, the ecclesia, the gathered assembly of people. This is you and this is me gathered together. We are called by Paul through God's word here to speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So what is that? Well, it's both something very specific and very general at the same time. Specifically speaking, those are categories for all the psalms. The psalms as we have them, all 150 of them, are songs. They are part of instruments of worship. They're songs of ascent and songs of descent that Israelites used when they went to the temple and when they came down from the temple. They're spiritual songs that were used in the movement and life of Israel. And they're hymns. That's what is collected essentially there. So from a specific standpoint... Paul's referring to this idea of psalms, of spiritual songs, of hymns. Now, generally speaking, he's also talking about a bigger category of how we speak to one another. We know this because the New Testament and Paul's letters, he oftentimes quotes what we know to be older sections of spiritual songs and hymns that were used in the worship life of the New Testament. We know this from like Philippians 2, 5 through 11. It's a piece of an old hymn that most likely was used in the worship of Israel. We actually talked about this Last couple of weeks when we talked about Ephesians, there's a little section there in Ephesians 5 that Paul quotes that set off in your text. It's part of an old hymn or song that was used. Um, it's right there in Ephesians like, let's see, Ephesians 5, 6, 14. Wake, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. That is actually a piece of text from a hymn that was used in the worship life of Israel. Colossians 1 is part of that same story. Hebrews 1, 1 through 3, or 13, 1 through 3. These are all pieces of scripture that are part of texts or hymns that were used in the worship life of Israel, in which Paul would recall lyrics for them, and he would teach, or the author of Hebrews would recall lyrics or recall lines or stanzas, and he would use them as ways to teach. Do you remember the song that we sing? Do you remember the hymn that was a part of our life? That's what he sang. And so he sang specifically the, the Psalms and Scripture. So this is an interesting call, right? Like the believers are called to speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. I mean, what does that really mean? I mean, how do we actually go about doing that? Does that mean that the believers are not allowed to speak to themselves and to each other in other ways? Of course not. Of course not. It doesn't mean that you can't speak to one another about sports or your children or scrapbooking or whatever fancies your desires, right? It doesn't, doesn't mean that. But at the very same time, it also means that we are called to speak to each other in those terms and in those ways. That we're called to use the Word of God as our conversational pieces together. And the why on this is really important. Because we know that the Word of God does what? The Word of God gives life. The Word of God is actually used to answer, in all our practical ways, all matters of faith and life and practice. It's one of the things that we declare in our, in our doctrine, right, our theology, our core theology of the church, is that we believe that God's Word is fully usable and infallible and in matters of all faith, life, and practice, which means it answers life's most difficult questions and is used to be called upon. And we're called to do that with one another. It's called to be part of our conversational life together. So the command is, believers, speak to one another with God's words on your tongue. So the practical side of this for me is, what in the world does that look like? 
I mean, if somebody walks down the front church here and they're like, hey, Trev, how, how's the, uh, how are the kids doing? Truck holding up okay? Some trust in chariots, others in horses. I trust in the name of the Lord our God. And everyone's like, all righty then. Big gulps, huh? See you later. I mean, like, weird, right? Like, how, that can't be how that unfolds. Like, so what does that practically really mean? Well, of course it doesn't mean that's how we're called to interact together, right? But at the same time, that's exactly what it's saying, which is the Word of God should be ever-present in our conversations with people. When someone tells you that something great has happened to them, it's easy to say, that's nice. But it's also easy to say, God is so good. Now, it's not a tongue-in-cheek, like, super Christian, God is good all the time, weird Bible-beater kind of nod. Amongst believers, it's a real comment. Man, this, this was a blessing. God is, God is good. Yeah, he is really good. He's really good. When someone's struggling, I don't really know what to do. Our, our oldest is giving us this challenge or our marriage is struggling or whatever, and, and we're able to, to sit with one another and say, you know, I remember when I was wrestling with something similar, and I still haven't figured it out, but, but I was thinking about Psalm 23 where, where the psalmist tells us that even though I walked in the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. And I tried to let fear get pushed out of my life, right? Like being able to speak truth in God's words into each other's hearts. When someone's struggling and go, man, I've really blown it. I don't know that she's going to let me back in our house. And you can say, you have blown it. But God tells us, promises that we confess our sins. He forgives us. And humbly we can go ask for forgiveness from those that love us. We put God's word upon our tongue. We make it part of our conversation. And again, he's saying something simple. He's basically looking at the community saying, speak God's word to one another. Why? Because we need to hear it. When I struggle, I need to hear that God is good. I need to hear that he'll never leave me nor forsake me. I need to be reminded about the consistency of his word. When something great in my life happens, I need someone to remind me that it's the Lord. I didn't do something fantastic God is just good, right? Those are important things in the community. And so what Paul's saying here is that when it was filled with the Spirit, the command is speak to one another with God's word on your tongue. Make it part of your conversation. Talk about Jesus with one another. I know this sounds really trivial, but here's the thing. It's a command. And so therefore not to do it is actually disobedience. If you think about it like that, I am called, directly called by God to speak to my brothers and sisters in Christ, which includes my wife and my children and our friends and other people in the community, with God's word upon my lips. Not my world's greatest advice, but what does Scripture say? The truth is when someone comes to you and asks for advice, the very worst thing you can give them is what you would do, right? It's a disaster. But what you would do tied to with what Scripture has done and spoken and says is incredibly valuable. So we speak to one another with God's word upon our lips. Simple, yet really challenging, right? Get over the whole, okay, you know, God is, God's, thank you, God. Like, it's just, this is true. If you recognize who you are apart from Christ, everything that you say should be about bringing him glory, right? So it's a command. It's important and it's there, so let's just, let's keep that there. So he says, speak to one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Practically, keep God's word upon your lips. Speak to other believers. Be an encourager. 
ask for encouragement. If you need word from the Lord, ask your friends, do you know anything in Scripture that talks about this? Can you send it to me? I just need, I need some reassurance today. I'm feeling pretty crummy. All right? Look at that second command. So we've got that first one. Second one says this. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord. You know, there's not a lot to exegete there until you begin to really look at the sentence and you realize there's actually a whole lot in there. And there's about four qualifiers. We're going to look at two real big ones. The first one is that we're called to sing and make music in our hearts. This is interesting, right? Because the word heart in Hebrew is the word, or in Greek, excuse me, is the word cardia, which we get cardiac or cardiography or these kind of words that involve the sort of heart. And it means two things. It means the literal organ that pumps blood to the rest of your body. That's what that Greek word means. But it also means at the exact same time, the center and origin for all of human life and existence and being. So in, in the Greek, the word for heart, much like actually the English, is this idea that encompasses this physical thing that gives life and the non-physical thing that gives life, the emotional the deep wellness, the thing that says this is who I am and how I exist in the heart. Now, a lot of cultures don't have, they have multiple words for this, but Greek and English actually kind of wrap it all up into to one. So what Paul's getting at here with this idea of in the heart, because he could just say sing and make music, like church, sing. But he says, church, sing and make music in your heart, which is an invitation to something really remarkable. First, if it's an invitation to something emotional. Music is this incredible gift that God has given us throughout history. If you just can't make, you cannot make it to the Old Testament without coming headlong into the idea that music, as part of God's expression of worship, is this incredible gift that He's given us for Him. And that we are invited to engage in it emotionally. We are invited to risk, to find joy, to, to find the vulnerability in those things. That we are called to worship with our hearts. That worship is not a habit. It's why coming to church on Sunday morning is fully useless if you're just going to come and not be present with your heart. Just an activity. It has about as much to do with salvation as riding a bike. Zero. You can go to church every single day of your entire life and never know Jesus and never find abundant life here on earth or eternal life in heaven. I know, sadly, lots of people that engage church this way. The heart is this sort of central piece in which Paul makes this connection to the church that says, sing with your heart, that invitation to the emotional. Now, here's the other caveat, is it does not mean that worship is purely an emotional experience. It does not mean that we have to feel it to have actually worshiped. The invitation with our heart is to actually do this as an act of our will, which means there are days that you're going to walk into this place and you are not going to want to sing. There are days where you're going to look next to you and somebody seems fully engaged and you are fully disengaged, where you are wrestling or you are mad or you are frustrated or you just don't actually want to be here. Or you're here out of spite, right? Which is occasionally what happens. The invitation to worship with our heart is an invitation to act on the will, to say, God, I'm I'm struggling but I want to choose to be here to read these words, to hear them penetrate my soul. I want to listen to the words that are being sung. I want to recite them to you. Even though emotionally I may feel distant, I want to engage you with my heart. And so, Lord, I am making an act 
of my will to engage in worship. It's why the theology of worship lyrics, one of the reasons it's so vitally important. We take that incredibly seriously around here. We sing songs that are based and rooted only in Scripture. We believe, right, that it totally matters. That a song, right, that is just dripping with romantic style worship lyrics and sounds good does not make it healthy and does not make it whole and does not make it beneficial. So we examine the lyrics of the songs that we sing to make sure they align with Scripture. Why? Because there are moments where a song may be emotionally driving me that has zero connection to God's word or his truth. But there are also moments that I'm invited into just reciting words of Scripture, even though my soul wants to yell at God. See, worshiping with our heart means that both we're invited to engage in the emotional, but when the emotional is not there, we engage the will to say, I choose still in this moment, God, to worship you with my heart, and so I'm going to engage even when I don't want to. And that invitation is really powerful because what Paul's saying is don't just sing. Don't just come and sing. Engage in worship with your heart. The cardia, the place that gives you life, full life here. Worship the Lord here. And if it's not emotional, right, that's okay. Tell God that you want to surrender everything, that you're struggling, that you feel all these blockades in your life. It's why we take a moment before we start worshiping every Sunday and we say, ask the Lord to prepare you. Because we all have things that stand in the way. So we have that first caveat, right, or that first little uh, qualifier. But the second one's equally as interesting. He says this. He says, sing and make music to the Lord in your heart, okay, in your heart, to the Lord. So he doesn't just say, sing, sing with your heart, just lay it all out there. He says, sing with all your heart to the Lord. This is interesting, right? Because it seems on paper like this is a no-brainer. Like, how easy is that? That's what we do on Sunday morning. But the reality is a lot of us, myself included, just sing. But it's not directed towards or about anything other than myself. Worship is not about you. We're in a culture that passes judgment on worship like we're some kind of weird food critic as if this thing were created for you. How was worship? I was okay. I didn't really care for the songs. I don't care what you cared for. This is literally called to be to your God who made you and created you. The lyrics are dripping with his word. And you're telling me you don't like that the drummer was loud or that Mike was basing it out? He does just that, by the way. I don't care. Because here's the thing. Worship is towards the Lord. And not just towards him in terms of how we do it, but in what we engage in. Meaning that the direction of my worship is about him. It's not about what everybody else. It's not a performance. We're not here trying to manipulate each other to outsing one another. This is all for the Lord. So get over it if you don't like it. Most of that is probably you. Now, there are, of course, distractions in worship and things that we can try and rule out. Those things are very real. But at the core of most of it, just make sure that what we do when we sing is really just towards the Lord. God, this is you. And Paul doesn't say, go out and make good music. He just says, go out and sing and make music. 
So what's the practical way to do this? Well, my simplistic view of this is, I know a lot of what I've just mentioned takes place in the common ground of the church, the ecclesia, the gathering, but that's actually the least practical way to make music with your, with your life and your heart because we're only here once a week. Well, some of you twice a month, some of you twice a year. So we're only here occasionally, right? But every breath of every day, you have the opportunity and invitation and command to make music with your heart to the Lord, which means sing in the car, sing with your kids, make up songs that have scripture in them, change the things that you put the majority of music into your ear and change them in a direction that leads you towards the Lord. Direct your heart to sing and make music to the Lord all the time. It is an attitude and life changer. The music that you play in your homes, I'm not saying don't play non-Christian music. I'm just saying that in those moments, and you know when they are, we need to substitute the world and put us in a direction that leads us towards the Lord. So sing. Shut those windows in your car or roll them down and cry out to God. Invite your kids to sing and not be embarrassed. Don't ever tell your children they have a terrible voice. Tell them that their voice is beautiful to the Lord and sing with everything that they have and model it for them. Like the practical side of this command is not to shy away and become shallow because we're worried how other people are going to perceive us. The command in this is sing with everything you have in your heart to the Lord. And don't worry about what everybody else is doing. Worship is about you towards the Lord. Engage your family in it. So get in the car, get outside, mow the yard, whatever it is, just sing to the Lord. And to sing to the Lord in the moments that you don't want to. In the moments where your heart is angry and frustrated, change what you're putting into your mind. When you're angry, when you're struggling, when you're frustrated at your spouse, put something else in your soul. Right? This is the practical call, right? Paul's telling these believers, like, look, speak to one of their hymns and songs and spiritual songs and let those things resonate through your heart. Sing together. This is a gift that God's given us. Give your full emotional heart into it. And when you don't want to, make it an act of the will. God, I don't want to be here, but I want you to change that in me. And so I'm going to sing and I'm going to listen to these lyrics and I'm going to realize they come straight from Scripture and I'm going to recite them back to you because they are your truth. So change my heart in the way that I hear them. God, I'm struggling at home. I feel like I'm beat down. I want to sing or I want to listen to something that's going to change my mindset. And so, Lord, I'm going to put something else in my soul. And I'm going to sing it. And even if I don't sing it out loud, I'm going to sing it through my heart. I'm going to let the lyrics of it strip my soul. Like, this is what Paul is essentially saying. So that's the command, right? So sing and make music with your heart to the Lord. Look at the third one. He says this, And in all things, <clears throat> always giving thanks to God the Father for everything. Always be giving thanks. You know, thankfulness is uh, not an action. It's actually a state of being, right? It, it's a way of seeing the world around us. So if, if Paul's looking at the church and he's saying, listen, always be in the state of giving thanks. I think he's being very practical. I don't think he's being like, Hey, you know, God, thank you for this food. Really grateful. I think he's really saying, like, look around you. And this is the, the first century where the church is being persecuted, deeply persecuted. And death is most literally at the doorstep of most of these believers. 
There's not a lot of room here to give thanks. At least in the Philippian church, we know there was great famine. And he's saying yet here, in all things, always be giving thanks. In the process of giving thanks. Not just be thankful and say, God, I'm grateful. But like, I'm always in the process of giving thanks. Because the reverse of this is this idea in us that is about grumbling and complaining. That it looks around us and says, man, I wish I had more. Or this isn't fair. Or I don't like this. This car is crummy and I want a new one. There's a part of us that is always in that space. We know it's not right, but we, we live there. And grumbling and complaining is like a quicksand of the heart, right? Like the more you do it and engage in it, you don't realize it, but the more you get mired in it and the more difficult it, comes, it is to come out. It becomes part of your DNA. You just become someone that always talks about how hard your day is, how difficult your life is, how hard the kids are at home. Those things are all very true. I don't doubt that at all. But there's a way of addressing life and thinking about life that is different with the believer. The believer is called to always be in the act of giving thanks, which means I'm not thankful that life is hard. Okay, that's not what I'm thankful for, but I'm thankful that in the middle of life I have reason to find joy. See, because this is what Paul's saying. He says we're always giving thanks. Why? Because we are going to be doing it in the name of God the Father for everything In the name of Jesus. So the reason we give thanks is because we have two things that are intangibly amazing. We have the promise of abundant life, and we have the promise that this world is not the end. So no matter what's going on in your life, as difficult as it is, you don't have to be grateful for the circumstance, but you can be grateful for the outcome. You know what the outcome is? God will never leave you nor forsake you, and there's a promise that outweighs this world by a thousandfold. So at the worst of every single one of your awful days, there awaits a promise of God's faithfulness and a promise of his eternal provision. So no matter what, there is you can say light at the end of the tunnel, you can see it however you want to, no matter what, there is always goodness in every breath. And here's the thing, right? Like Paul actually says that always be in the habit of giving thanks for everything. It's really easy to give thanks when life is clipping along, but for everything is challenging, right? Like, How do I be in the process of giving thanks when life has sucker punched me? When I feel like it's sitting on my chest and I can't breathe? How do I do that? What's the practical side of that? Is it this sort of fake, sort of eternal optimist, like, you know, silver lining in everything? No. You never have to be thankful for how hard life is. Life is hard. Brandon says all the time, no one gets out of this thing unscathed. We all run into terrible, difficult, challenging circumstances. You don't have to be grateful for those. We can be grateful for those that don't define us. Those circumstances do not define your life. What defines your life is how you live in the middle of them with the God that you serve who has given you every single thing. Now, that's hard. I get it. I get it. But this is the beauty of what it means to be followers of Christ. That even in tragedy, there is a promise that outweighs this world's greatest tear. There is a promise that waits for us that I do not have to be locked into this death sentence forever. There is a hope and a joy that waits for me. And that hope and joy may come tomorrow or it may come in a year or it may come down the line. But it is never going to not be there. So we become people that are grateful for everything. So what's the practical way of doing this? Well, my simplistic way of looking at it is two things. One, you change your attitude. You have to. 
You have to change your attitude. Part of the way that believers should look at the world is wholly different than how the world sees the world. Just be someone who's grateful. Like, here's the thing. It's hard to be grateful for a flat tire, but we can be grateful that we have a car. Like, it's hard to be grateful for the fact that I want to do this, but we can, we have rice and beans in our cupboard. Like, it's, it's hard, but it's an attitude change that takes place in my heart that just says, I'm not going to be someone who grumbles and complains, mainly because those people are the worst. And two, because it's a poison of the heart. Like, what am I moving forward by telling everybody how hard my day was, how difficult my life is? It's making them feel bad, and I'm making myself feel like a lump of whatever, like coal, like an anchor to the boat. Like, this is not a place where life begins. It's a mental choice to realize that anything that you have is because Jesus is. And I'm not talking about be a glass half full kind of person. Right? What I'm talking about is just being glad there's water in the glass. Like, You can be a glass half empty, glass half full person, but you can also just be grateful that the glass has got water in it at all. I think that's the realest part of all this. Is like, it's not a fake, like, God is good. No, life is crappy right now. And God doesn't feel very good. But I will tell you this. He's never left me before. He's never failed me before. His word endures forever. I have, I have seen him. I've seen him move, and so I'm going to trust to believe in that, and I'm going to believe that God is good. And I'm going to be thankful that here I am this morning drawing breath with left up to my own devices. I should be in the gutter somewhere. So the attitude is something that we change. And then the second thing that we have to change when we change our attitude is we've got to change how we speak. How you speak, we've looked at this in Ephesians, is really important. Because how you speak can literally change the lives of the people around you, and it can change your own life. When you begin to speak truth, real biblical truth in your life, it's like being washed with the spring rain. If you speak despair and fear and failure into your life, right? Number one, you're being really disobedient. But number two, you're going to live that out. But when you begin to speak life and truth and gratefulness over your life, it begins to wash you. Now, I'm not just saying like, again, not being an optimist. I'm just saying like, I'm going to speak the things that I know to be true about God in the moments where I really am struggling to believe them. So God, I'm feeling very alone. I'm feeling very abandoned. But your word tells me that you will never leave me nor forsake me. Your word tells me that even in my darkest hour, you are there, that you are light in the darkness. And so Lord, I'm going to speak that in my life. You are my light. You are the lamp unto my feet. In a dark and weary place, you are my hope. You are my stronghold, my steadfast rock. You are my God. I'm going to change the way that I speak. I'm going to do away with the grumbling and complaining. Number one, because I want to give life to other people and I want to give it to myself. And I know that, yeah, it's a choice. And so I'm not going to be fake, but I'm going to be true about it. Life is hard but I know other people have it worse and I'm super grateful and I want to be someone that shares hope in life. So this is what Paul's saying, right? We're not trying to outgrumble each other. He's saying always be in the process of giving thanks, even when it's hard, for everything and do it in Jesus. And what he means by that last little piece of in Jesus is this, at the end of the day, no matter how terrible everything is, 
no matter how colossally big your life may feel like it's falling apart, as a follower of Christ, no matter what it is, you always have the greatest thing. It's always Jesus. If there's nothing else, it's always him. If there's no other movement, no bank account, no spouse, no whatever, no whatever it is, there is always and forever Christ. We can always give thanks that we have Jesus. And it's the best. Now, it doesn't make life less hard, but it's true. So he says, look, as believers, sing to each other. right? Sing with each other. Engage and make music with your heart. Share songs and hymns and spiritual songs. These are important. They're values. Be a person who's always in the process of giving thanks. And then finally he says this, and submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. We're going to get to this next week in a lot when we talk about submission. Um, but this verse is really important because it's going to shed light on our next one, which 6.1 says, wives submit to your husbands. And then it's going to talk about how husbands are called to love their wives. But all of that is in the context of this verse. Okay? And scripture does not always help us with the way that we have broken it out with our numbers and chapters because this is very much attached to the next verse. It's not separate. It's not like, oh, good, we're done with all that, husbands and wives. This is a continued... So this submit to one another is actually the blanket on which wives and husbands are called to live. Mutual submission. We're going to talk about it a lot next week. But this is what this idea is. Here's what I want you to hear this morning. Submission is not the forced laying down of your will. It's not submission. Submission is the willing laying down of your life. There's two very different things. So when you are submitted by someone, this is where culture has stolen a word for us. When you are submitted by someone, they force you to do something that you don't want to do. So if you're a, a wrestler or you're an MMA or whatever, when someone submits you, they put you in a place in which they force you to do their will, and you don't want to, but if you don't, something's going to break. That's not the biblical idea of submission at all. Submission is what Christ came to do for us, which is being fully and holy and above all God, voluntarily laid his Godness down to become fully human, to die for the sins of humanity in which he created, voluntarily and fully, that he came to serve, as he said himself, and not be served. Submission is the voluntary laying down of your own life. And it's always done in joy. Incredibly important when you start talking about the ideas of husbands and wives and how we live together as the church, which is I'm not doing something because I have to. I'm doing something because I get to and I want to. And when he calls other believers to submit to one another, he calls them to do it out of reverence for Christ, meaning I want to willfully lay down my life for you because I love Jesus. I want to lay down my life for my wife or for my husband because why? Because I love Jesus and I get to voluntarily lay down my life because the Christian life is one that is meant to serve and not be served. It's the one that's meant to be a blessing and not just be blessed. It's one that's meant to do things and not just get things. This is the incredible paradox of the believing life. I get to die to myself because Christ died for me. When we begin to see the people in the church like this, I have the privilege of laying down my life to serve my brothers and sisters in Christ. What unfolds here on Sunday morning is not about me. 
And you begin to mutually do that for one another. And husbands begin to mutually do that for their wives. And wives do that for their husbands. All of a sudden, this thing, this voluntarily sacrificial life laying down, this death to self, becomes remarkably beautiful. Because it becomes a movement of others. Not me, but you. As Christ said, not my will, but your will. And when life becomes a movement of others, what you will see is a floodgate of the goodness of God. And so he tells the church, submit to one another. This doesn't mean, okay, if you're in an argument, just take the high road. It doesn't mean take the low. It means take no road. It means most literally just be joyful in the idea that you can lay your life down and bless somebody else. Who cares about you? That's the movement of the heart. You're not being bulldozed. You're joyfully laying down your life to bless somebody else around you. So what's the practical way to do this? And we're going to really get into this deep in the next couple of weeks. But what's the practical way to do this? And I mean this in the very way I say it. Be last. Be last. In the most literal sense of the word, be last. Right? Jesus talks about that the first shall be last, those kind of things. Those are very true statements. Be last. Go last, eat last, think about yourself last, serve your wife and your children or your husband and your children first. Go home tired and ask your wife what you can do for her to make her night better. If you're a wife, be tired all day and ask your husband what you can do to make his day better. When you want to strangle your children, think about them in ways that say, what can I do to actually serve them so that they see something wholly different than an angry dad. Or a dad that says, oh, my dad's going to kill me. Be last to do the things that serve yourself. You will not starve if you wait till everybody else eats. You will not miss out on life if you open doors for other people and wait six seconds while they pass through the bank line first, whatever. Be last. In the simplest sense of the word, be last. Lay down whatever ridiculous principle stand that's so prideful and silly that you are standing on in that stupid argument with your wife. Lay it down. It's dumb anyway. You know it is. Who cares? Take no road. The problem with taking the high road is that we always have to tell people we took it. That's the ridiculous nature of it. I took the high road with her, so, uh, oh, did you? You just tossed her under the bus. Take no road. Just don't be so much about you. There's a beauty to living here. And again, I say it super simplistically. I know it's much more complicated than that. But it doesn't have to begin that way. It begins with the deep breath. Don't care. It doesn't matter. It's not about me. I'm just going to listen. Sure, yeah. I'm going to help my neighbor fix his flat. I do not have time for that. But he's out there and he's struggling and he's got no, I don't even know what he's got in his hand. I think he has a balloon. Um, that's not going to work. I'm going to help him. Like, just think wholly different about yourself. And the best way that I can phrase that is, just be last. Just be last. No one on this world needs to know. Everything that we do is done before the eyes of the Lord and the eyes of the Lord alone. We do it for his glory. And that's what he says here, right? He says, do it 
out of reverence for Christ. A lot of times we lay down our lives so that you'll see us do it later, get a little extra credit at home. Right? If I do this, then I kind of build up my bank account there, and, and uh, that's, that's done in the same selfish manner. They're just doing it selfishly. I might as well not do it at all. If we do things out of reverence for Christ, it's, it's this idea that says, God, I'm going to do this, and it's gonna, I want it to honor you. Kind of in the way that we give also, right? How do I give? Do I give to be seen or do I give so that I can honor the Lord? Do people need to know? If I need people to know, I should ask myself, why am I giving? This is the idea of submission. The joyful and willing laying down of my life because I love Jesus. This is going to change your marriage completely as we begin to talk about it. Because it's not about being run over. It's about the joyful and willful laying down of your own lives, and it's actually not just a call for wives. If you begin to hear the voice of, and husbands love your wife as Christ loves the church, you will see that that call is actually a much more challenging call to submission. And we're going to see this incredible picture of mutual submission and the joy of what God does in marriage when both people say, I love Jesus more. So today, the challenge is to begin to live these things out, right? To speak to one another in songs and hymns and spiritual songs. Like to be the word of God literally on our lips. To sing and make music in our hearts to the Lord. At any moment, any day, here in our car, wherever it is. To be in the process, in the habit of always giving thanks. Changing our attitudes, changing the way that we speak. And submitting to each other. The willful laying down of our lives because we love Jesus and making a heart and attitude that says, I'm just going to be last and I'm going to love doing it. This is what Paul begins to say is what a picture of those that are filled with the Spirit of God begin to look like. And it's going to pour over from the church into our homes, wives, husbands, and children. And we're going to see those in the next few weeks. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the privilege of your word, for the joy of what it means to open these passages together. For the challenge, yet the beauty of what they say and mean. So both the command and the practical side, make these resonate deeply in our hearts. May these be true and real things that echo through us through eternity. That we will be men and women that speak to each other with the word of God upon our lips, that it matters that much to us. Lord, that we would be people that are in the process of always worshiping you singing with all of our hearts, the emotional and the non-emotional, making a, a choice in our hearts to direct our worship towards the Lord at all times, to make that part of our family's story, to be in the process of always giving thanks. I'm getting the complaining and the grumbling out of my life, and I'm just going to be grateful for the Lord. Even in life's difficult moments for everything, I'm going to be grateful. I'm going to change my attitude. I'm going to change my heart. I'm going to speak differently over me and over people. And finally, Lord, I, I get to do all this. This is a privilege. Someone that is filled with the Spirit of God loves the idea of laying down their life because they love Jesus. I want to be last. You were last. I want to chase you. So, Lord, hear our cry and hear our heart as we close our time in worship this morning. Amen. Let's stand together and close out. creatures of our God and King lift 
up your voice and with us sing, oh, praise him, alleluia. Thou burning sun with golden beam, thou silver moon with softer gleam. by his blood come and rejoice in his great Hallelujah, Hallelujah. 
Amen. Let's give God a hand this morning. So don't forget as you walk out to say hello to the McBrayers, au revoir, bonjour, souffle, whatever it is, just say hello to them on the way out. We'd love for you to do that. But to be empowered this morning, to live life that is full of the Spirit, to engage with each other with God's Word on our lips, to be someone who sings with all of your heart towards the Lord, to be grateful and thankful at all moments, and to be someone that willingly wants to lay down your life because you love Jesus. Let those guide you and push you as you walk in this place this morning. Go in peace.